everyone, and welcome to the 72nd episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I am the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit connecting young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like our graphic novels, animated videos, and of course, our killer social media. Uh, today, we are joined by Dr. Wilfred Riley. Before I even begin to introduce Dr. Riley, I want to remind those of you who are joining us on Zoom, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, you can go ahead, use the comment section to type in your questions, make them short, and we will get to as many of them as we can. Uh, professor Wilfred Riley is a political science professor at the um, at Kentucky State University. It's a top 30 historically black college. He's the author of several books, including The $50 Million Question, a book dealing with how people value identity. In 2019, he published Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling uh, a fake race war. And just last year, he also published Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, but we're going to talk about them anyway today. Professor Riley, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with uh, Hate Crime Hoax. In the introduction, you described the book as both a pro-American and a profoundly pro-Black work of social science. And you described your intention as uh, in writing as that of lancing a boil. What, um, what is the source of infection and how does the research you present address it? Well, that's, a, that's actually a really good and well-phrased question. What's the source of the infection? That's something that's discussed in the book, but that I haven't really heard presented often in that fashion. So what I'm talking about when I say lancing a boil is the reality that there are a lot of ideas that are very prevalent in sort of modern middle-class American society. And you can really run down a list of these, like the Black Lives Matter narrative, that there's a, a near genocidal race war going on. I mean, there's a top 1,000 book on Amazon right now, by the prominent attorney Benjamin Crump called Open Season Legalized Genocide of Colored People. Um, there's the sort of interracial crime narrative in back of that, where both the, the left and the quote-unquote alt-right are constantly trotting out these stories of people brutalized and abused by you know, these, these warrior-class citizens of the other group. And a lot of these names have almost become known nationally and internationally. I mean, Barbecue Becky and so on down the line. We saw a young woman lose an executive job the other day because of a clash in a dog park. Um, so th this is, again, presented as something that's extraordinarily common. Um, you know, white privilege, at least the univariate version of that narrative. Uh, and th this sort of stuff across the board, the idea that biological sex is a complex, tricky reality, cultural appropriation, so on down the line. And many of these ideas are backed up by almost no empirical facts whatsoever. So in the books, Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, I mean, in Hate Crime Hoax, I look at a lot of these very high profile incidents of alleged interracial or cross-class violence 
Uh, Jesse Smollett doesn't make it into the book in full, but I mean, I talk about Yasmin Saweed, the burnt black churches. If I recall, we have Air Force Academy in there, and you could just deduke lacrosse. You could just go on down the line with these, Tawana Brawley. Uh, and Taboo goes beyond that in, into breaking down the actual number of, of you know, unarmed African-Americans killed by the police in a typical year. Last year, that figure was 17. Uh, it looks like perhaps seven or eight people were killed uh, by white officers that fall in that category. Uh, the actual figures on interracial violence. Last year, violent crimes involving either a black perp and a white victim or a white perp and a black victim were 3% of what you call serious index crime. Person most likely to kill you is your ex-wife. But even within that, that tiny set, it wasn't, there wasn't a minority advantage from any sort of moral standpoint. We committed 80%, if I recall correctly, of those crimes. And just all of these things, the idea of systemic racism, once you adjust for age and test scores, um, the idea of white privilege, once you adjust for class. And there's some stuff on the hard right, from the hard right, that's equally nonsensical in the book, but that's frankly not the focus. The, the focus of the book is that all of these massively prominent ideas that are presented constantly in modern upper middle class discourse in the USA are just nonsense. There, there's clearly no race war going on. 25% of marriages or whatever it is are interracial. So we can work on eliminating residual racism and also things I think are more important, strengthening markets and so on. And a lot of you guys, you guys would probably agree on many of, but that doesn't require this level of dishonesty and BS and nonsense. So your question is sort of who's presenting this? I think that's a fascinating question. Um, we seem to have produced an elite in the USA. This has been discussed by everyone from Tim Weiss to Tucker Carlson that doesn't much like the country, which is a pretty remarkable thing. I mean, with a few exceptions, the later Byzantine Empire and so on. As a political scientist or a historian, you don't see that very much. I, I think a lot of things Macron has done are stupid, but I don't, I don't get the impression that France's elite dislikes Frenchmen. And Nigeria's elite dislikes Nigerians and, and very integrated countries as well. Singapore's elite dislikes Singaporeans. Here, many people seem to think there's something retrograde or unusual about the U.S. national population and that this needs to be changed. And partisan politics does tie, tie into a good bit of this. I mean, if you look at uh, American newsrooms right now, not only is there a very specific population composition that almost everyone is young, in a fairly high class in SES terms, coastal, urban, so on down the line. But there's there's one political perspective, which would, you could call kind of, I would think of it as HR liberalism, sort of mainstream, dull, center-left positions that's held by almost everyone. Uh, Pew Research in 2004 looked at the attitudes of national news journalists and found that only 7% of them were on the right in any sense. Um, conservatives, libertarians, right of the center right. Uh, there were very few true radicals as well. I thought that was interesting. Almost everyone fell into this single spectrum, um, sort of Hillary Clinton voting Americans. And that, that's very true in academia as well, although we're a little more to the radical left. Uh, Econ Live recently found that, if I recall correctly, 26% of academics see themselves as radicals. Another 25% or so see themselves as activists, 18% openly see themselves as Marxists or communists. Everyone, and welcome to the 72nd episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I am the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit connecting young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like our graphic novels, animated videos, and of course our 
killer social media. Uh, today we are joined by Dr. Wilfred Riley. Before I even begin to introduce Dr. Riley, I want to remind those of you who are joining us on Zoom, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, you can go ahead, use the comment section to type in your questions, make them short, and we will get to as many of them as we can. Uh, professor Wilfred Riley is a political science professor at the um, at Kentucky State University. It's a top 30 historically black college. He's the author of several books, including The $50 Million Question, a book dealing with how people value identity. In 2019, he published Hate Crime Hoax, how the left is selling uh, a fake race war. And just last year, he also published Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, but we're going to talk about them anyway today. Professor Riley, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with uh, Hate Crime Hoax. In the introduction, you described the book as both a pro-American and a profoundly pro-Black work of social science. And you described your intention as uh, in writing as that of lancing a boil. What, um, what is the source of infection and how does the research you present address it? Well, that's, a, that's actually a really good and well-phrased question. What's the source of the infection? That's something that's discussed in the book, but that I haven't really heard presented often in that fashion. So what I'm talking about when I say lancing a boil is the reality that there are a lot of ideas that are very prevalent in sort of modern middle-class American society. And you can really run down a list of these, like the Black Lives Matter narrative, that there's a, a near genocidal race war going on. I mean, there's a top 1,000 book on Amazon right now, by the prominent attorney Benjamin Crump called Open Season Legalized Genocide of Colored People. Um, there's the sort of interracial crime narrative in back of that, where both the, the left and the quote-unquote alt-right are constantly trotting out these stories of people brutalized and abused by you know, these, these warrior-class citizens of the other group. And a lot of these names have almost become known nationally and internationally. I mean, Barbecue Becky and so on down the line. We saw a young woman lose an executive job the other day because of a clash in a dog park. Um, so th this is, again, presented as something that's extraordinarily common. Um, you know, white privilege, at least the univariate version of that narrative. Uh, and th this sort of stuff across the board, the idea that biological sex is a complex, tricky reality, cultural appropriation, so on down the line. And many of these ideas are backed up by almost no empirical facts whatsoever. So in the books, Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, I mean, in Hate Crime Hoax, I look at a lot of these very high profile incidents of alleged interracial or cross-class violence. Uh, Jesse Smollett doesn't make it into the book in full, but I mean, I talk about Yasmin Saweed, the burnt black churches. If I recall, we have Air Force Academy in there, and you could just deduce lacrosse. You could just go on down the line with these. Tawana Brawley. Uh, and Taboo goes beyond that in, into breaking down the actual number of, of you know, unarmed African Americans killed by the police in a typical year. Last year, that figure was 17. Uh, it looks like perhaps seven or eight people were killed uh, by white officers that fall in that category. Uh, the actual figures on interracial violence. Last year, violent crimes involving either a black perp and a white victim or a white perp and a black victim were 3% of what you call serious index crime. Person most likely to kill you is your ex-wife. 
But even within that that tiny set, it wasn't there wasn't a minority advantage from any sort of moral standpoint. We committed 80 percent, if I recall correctly, of those crimes. And just all of these things, the idea of systemic racism, once you adjust for age and test scores, um, the idea of white privilege, once you adjust for class. And there's some stuff on the hard right from the hard right that's equally nonsensical in the book, but that's frankly not the focus. The, the focus of the book is that all of these massively prominent ideas that are presented constantly in modern upper middle class discourse in the USA are just nonsense. There's, there's clearly no race war going on. 25% of marriages or whatever it is are interracial. So we can work on eliminating residual racism and also things I think are more important, strengthening markets and so on. And a lot of you guys, you guys would probably agree on many of, but that doesn't require this level of dishonesty and BS and nonsense. So your question is sort of who's presenting this? I think that's a fascinating question. Um, we seem to have produced an elite in the USA. This has been discussed by everyone from Tim Weiss to Tucker Carlson that doesn't much like the country, which is a pretty remarkable thing. I mean, with a few exceptions, the later Byzantine Empire and so on. As a political scientist or a historian, you don't see that very much. I, I think a lot of things Macron has done are stupid, but I don't, I don't get the impression that France's elite dislikes Frenchmen. And Nigeria's elite dislikes Nigerians and, and very integrated countries as well. Singapore's elite dislikes Singaporeans. Here, many people seem to think there's something retrograde or unusual about the U.S. national population and that this needs to be changed. And partisan politics does tie, tie into a good bit of this. I mean, if you look at uh, American newsrooms right now, not only is there a very specific population composition and that almost everyone is young, in a fairly high class in SES terms, coastal, urban, so on down the line. But there's there's one political perspective, which would, you could call kind of, I would think of it as HR liberalism, sort of mainstream, dull center left positions that's held by almost everyone. Uh, Pew Research in 2004 looked at the attitudes of national news journalists and found that only 7% of them were on the right in any sense. Um, conservatives, libertarians, right of the center right. Uh, there were very few true radicals as well. I thought that was interesting. Almost everyone fell into this single spectrum, um, sort, of, sort of Hillary Clinton voting Americans. And that, that's very true in academia as well, although we're a little more to the radical left. Uh, Econ Live recently found that, if I recall correctly, 26% of academics see themselves as radicals. Another 25% or so see themselves as activists, 18% openly see themselves as Marxists or communists. So I think you have a group of people that almost all fit one demographic profile. And I actually think that's more important than politics to some extent. Uh, but the two also share this sort of banal center-left political perspective and that very often don't like the institutions they see around them. And a lot of this is post-Frankfurt theory stuff that this is all set up to oppress, you know, any performance gaps between groups or evidence of that oppression. But that's the climate in which th these sort of ideas can thrive. And when you point out the empirical facts, you very often just see the goalposts move. I mean, in the case of you know, 17 black people in a year, unarmed black people are killed by the police, that, that's all 17. The, the answer will often be something like one's too many. But I think those of us that do have conservative or libertarian, or for that matter, actually radical, any interesting perspective that might be based on data should understand the extent to which what we hear is often BS and react aggressively to that. So that is that is the problem. The boil is that this full, this nonsensical information. The source is, I think, the group I've described. Now, how to lance it, that's the issue. 
You described uh, how the inspiration for hate crime hoax came from Barry Glasner's The Culture of Fear, which you call the most important book that you've ever read. Uh, it's been a theme that we've covered a lot on this show with guests like John Tierney and Marion Tupi, who've talked about the similar human tendency to over-exaggerate, to focus on negative information and threats. So I, I was just interested with the connection that you drew between uh, Glasner's work and your subject matter. What, what's the relation? Well, I, I think the shared theme is this unbelievable level of panic fear in American life. And I, I actually, I don't like stereotyping in my day-to-day -day life, but as a social scientist, I'm almost paid to do it. So there's a specific sector in which this occurs, like middle to lower upper class people that are involved in the discourse. I don't think when I play ball in my, my working class neighborhood in Frankfurt, you hear so much of this, but the people that are very influential in terms of what we read in the paper, or the people who are on Twitter or Instagram might be a very simple way to put this, are almost all products of a milieu in which fear is constant, generated by the mass media. Uh, Glaster's book, I certainly like Glaster. I might have I might have been giving my fellow uh, social scientist a bit too much of a shout out there if I said it's the most yes, of important. Of course, I was, I was wishing to see that here that uh, Atlas Shrugged was the most sure. important book. Yeah, definitely, definitely top 10. But I mean, like in terms of that, that's a big you know, the origin of species and the Bible are both books. I mean, you know, I, I'd say the best book I've read probably is Tom Soule's Vision of the Anointed past couple of years. But I mean, uh, certainly Barry Glasner's book is right up there because he's the first guy and he's politically quite a bit to the left of me, but a good qual and quant researcher. He looked at all of these fears that existed in that category that I'm describing, like American urban upper middle class life and actually broke down how likely they were how likely the source of the fear was to actually claim your life for your health. And he goes through all of them. I mean, plane crashes were a massive focus of the news at this time, the late 90s. And he, I believe, was the guy who pointed out that it's 10 times as safe to fly on a plane as it is to drive. But a young child kidnapping, I mean, if you remember this period, this is sort of, you know, Amber Alerts and Megan's Law and so on. I mean, people were walking around with their kids on leashes. You know, moms were terrified to let little Jimmy leave the house. He points out that the total number of actual kidnappings, i.e. child taken by a true stranger, not a sort of a strange blue collar dad, but someone that actually wants to abuse or sexually abuse that kid gone for more than a week. There are a hundred or so of these cases per year. And he actually makes a very obvious point, which is sort of how would this even happen? I mean, when I think of myself at the park playing basketball with friends, I mean, a, a group of guys would chase down someone that walked off with a screaming child that didn't resemble them. So, I mean, it, again, this is this is very esoteric, unusual, low risk threat. But people were terrified of it because of constant repetition. I mean, the parallels are obvious to police violence and so on. And just just throughout the book, I mean, heterosexual AIDS, killer kids, on and on and on. These are the actual figures as read these risks. Um, some of those might be touched on only in passing, some of those might be touched on in other books, but the, the point is very much there. And the same, the same issue is true today. I mean, there was a great study from the Skeptic Research Center recently, which asked people, um, young leftist identified individuals mostly, how many people do you think in a typical year are unarmed men or black men who are, who are killed by the police? And again, we know the actual figure 17. But for people that identified as leftist or very liberal, if I recall correctly, 31% of them estimated this is about 1,000. Uh, 14 to 15% wow. 
estimated the figure at about 10,000. And uh, 8% thought it was more than that. Uh, to put that in context, there are less than 20,000 murders in a year. And although we are overrepresented, only about half of them involve Black people. So these estimates of the number of unarmed choir boys gunned down by cops were on par with the total number of murders, or at least of Black murders. And that's what I mean by incessant fear. And I think there's a big real role for social science when people ask, like, what do you guys do other than, you know, predict the market and, you know, invent advertising, like some of these old jokes, is anything replicable? One thing that can be done is that you can look at the data that easily exists that's out there. I mean, the BJS crime report comes out annually and say, well, no, th this isn't true. This isn't real. These are the actual things that we need to be worried about. And they're, they're mundane things like cancer or domestic violence, auto wreck. So that, that, is, that is the point of Glaster and that to a very large extent is the point of both of my books. Stop being so damn afraid and look around at the actual environment. And last, last line, we saw this under COVID really dramatically. The, the COVID narrative right now is sort of conservatives and libertarians are to blame for a lot of this. Look at them not wearing two masks, these animals, these savages. The reality is that many of the most damaging innovations or things that took place under COVID, I mean, the lockdown of the schools for more than a year, for example, were based on fear-driven rather than realistic projections. Um, it turns out that we knew the actual facts on COVID pretty early on. I mean, the IFR for the disease is between 0.26 and 0.63%. Uh, the average victim we've known since the first data started coming out of Italy is around 81. I mean, a terrible disease, but I mean, their entire documents, Great Barrington Declaration, so on, without endorsing any, that focus on how we could have managed the disease with very similar loss of life, if not less, but with life going on. And it, it was primarily fear that prevented that from happening. Neil Ferguson's prediction of 2 million dead before last September and so on. So both books and Glasner's book make the point, we need to get a handle on this terror that's governing people. And certainly not to be passing it down from one generation to the, to the next. One parent who is has exaggerated fears about child abductions uh, or, hate speech or, uh, you know, even accidents is going to overprotect their kid, their kid is going to feel more afraid, feel more threatened, uh, be less likely to take the kinds of risks that they might um, take to, to hopefully survive and, and gain a sense of confidence and, and agency. Um, let's uh, get into a little bit of the, the methodology of your book. How many times are fake hate crimes did you cover? Uh, how did you choose what to focus on and why? Well, there are more than a hundred covered in the book. Each one gets a sort of mini chapter of two to three pages. Uh, my overall data set on this is a professional quality data set. It's available to anyone to request it from me, but it currently includes more than 600 cases and more than case studies and more than a thousand uh, individual incidents of hate hoaxing. So there, there's no shortage of these happening. The, the basic methodology is simply that I used the tool, Google, Google Scholar, JSTOR, so on, some resources, uh, SPLC that popped up on uh, Google and similar sites to check out terms like hate crime hoax, hate crime collapse. I mean, I would very often follow a case from the beginning until a potential collapse and observe it collapse. The, so the research process for this book took less than a year, 
I mean, most of in many cases, I was already aware that an, a certain case had collapsed before I began to research it. But what I basically just did was take all of these incidents and put them for, I think, the first time in a single sort of academically organized file and then compare that number to the number of hate crimes that occur in a typical year. And I don't, I don't make any precise down to the decimal point estimates about the hate hoaxing rate, something I've had to clarify a number of times, sort of left-leaning reporters. But I mean, what I will say is that in a typical year, hate crimes are pretty rare. Hate crimes at the level of someone actually reporting that felony or that a misdemeanor to the FBI. Um, there are about 7,000 in a bad year. So I, when I put together the first round of the data set, had 409 uh, cases of hoaxing there, or incidents of hoaxing that were concentrated somewhere outside, but they were concentrated within a five-year period. And so you can compare that first to the, the baseline of 7,000, but then secondarily, each one of the cases was something that had been, first been reported and then been reported as debunked in serious national media. And when we did a secondary level of, of research or of analysis, uh, obviously not every hate crime receives national level reporting. Uh, as far as I and a very talented research associate were able to winkle out, it's about one in 10 that does. So that, that gives you the second data set of annually, let's say 700 prominent cases. And against that over a period of five, six years, you saw nearly 500, keep it as small as possible, 400, 350, total collapses. So that, that's a pretty significant rate. That was something that surprised me. And we were able to compare that to the rate of convictions in hate crime cases, which turned out to be extremely low. I mean, a document was just released by the FBI DOJ looking at the total number of hate crimes that were not reported, but where a perp was identified, the matter was taken seriously. And this was referred for prosecution um, between 2005 and 2019. And if I have this correct, that was about 1,700. In 284 of these cases, someone was actually convicted. So I'm, I'm sure that the majority of the cases, the ones we didn't uncover as frauds, did occur. But the hoax rate, one, we documented the cases. Two, I really, I mean, I, I wrote the entire book. There wasn't a research team on this one. But I then compared that to the maximum number of hate crimes in a particular year then the number of widely reported hate crimes in a particular year, and then to the conviction rate. Because the majority, it's not as though the 90 whatever percentage of hate incidents that aren't exposed as having not happened resulted in the definite conviction of a neo-Nazi. Most of them resulted in, if you will, an ambiguous non-result, where someone wrote graffiti on the side of a house, and it might have been a bigot, it might have been a hoaxer. It might have been an ex or a fraternity member playing a joke. We won't know. But that, that essentially is the book. Standard research techniques were used to pull out for the first time in a while how many of these there were. And it's not an, it's not an insubstantial number. So looking at the history of your subject matter, are these hoaxes a relatively new phenomenon? Are you able to point to um, legislation? or incidents or, you know, maybe famous hate crimes that were, you know, relatively constant? Yeah, well, 
I think that, so I was able to find more definite hoaxes within the recent past, certainly, I mean, hundreds of times more than in distant previous eras, like the 1960s or 1970s. Uh, after a while, because we stumbled on so many prominent cases while doing research on more modern incidents, some of those cases did make their way into the data set. So I'll write up front the number, the final number of a thousand incidents includes those. But the the vast majority were close to our, our recent day. I, I guess the question would be, is there more hate hoaxing today? Or is there simply greater online media access to cases that happened more recently? Uh, I don't really speculate on that, but I, I would not be surprised if in the modern quote unquote woke era, um, the rates of this have increased exponentially. I mean, so one thing when you say, you know, these are these are prominent cases or are there are there trends you uncovered? One of the most obvious is that virtually all of the hyper prominent recent sort of racial conflict incidents have turned out to not be real. I think that's fair to say, with the exception of something like mass shootings, which obviously did unfortunately occur. But if you look at Jussie Smollett, for example, I mean, uh, mocked by Dave Chappelle as the mad Frenchman, Juicy Smollier. If you look at Covington Catholic, I mean, that, that was a school from kind of my neck of the woods where these, these high school athletes were accused of this abusive stuff surrounding a Native American Indian elder and chanting and threatening to take his sacred rain drum away. None of it ever happened. Uh, if you look at Erica Thomas, the congresswoman who claimed that she was assaulted in a high-end grocery store, the guy who was involved, who was an anti-racist Cuban national, actually showed up at her press conference to ridicule her. But just going on down the line, Air Force Academy, where there's so many incidents that a general had to show up on campus to speak out against racism, and Kansas State, these horrible slurs on all the cars, really, it, you could go on and on for quite some time with this. I mean, we've seen two incidents with people uh, fighting over dogs recently that have led to you know the termination of sort of these white female executives none of this stuff seems to pan out and i do think this ties into the same environment where you're seeing more of these cases and you can explore why i do for a bit in the book um, are we are we granting a certain cachet to victimization for example I'm not a psychologist. So, I mean, I'd be interested in working on some real pieces about why this happens. But one clue might be that every time I've looked at a professional take on this, whether it's the site fakehatecrimes.org, whether it's my own data set, more than a third of these incidents take place on college campuses, college, university, or prep school campuses. And not more than 1% of the population of society can possibly exist in that environment, I would estimate. Um, perhaps you've got 2 million college students, 4 million, something like that. So full-time on-campus students. So why is that? Why is there such a dense concentration of these things precisely where kind of modern successor ideology is, is most prevalent? I think I'll leave that to people's common sense to figure out. So I want to make sure I got that right. So you were saying that when you look at these uh, the, is it all hate crimes or the fake hate crimes that 30% are taking place on college campuses? Well, that's a that's a fascinating question, actually. Um, so 30% or more of the hoaxes, looking at the first 10 pages of fakehatecrimes.org or of the data set, uh, definitely take place on, on the U campus. If there are report, now I think this would be a diff, actually, I think those those two data points would go together. I probably should go back and check and see whether 
30% or something similar of all hate crimes. Again, some good input there happen on college campuses. If so, I don't think that would counter my, my sort of thesis. I think it would support it because it's not possible that 30% of all racial tension takes place at Yale or Vassar. I mean, what that would almost certainly have to be is people taking sort of the normal inconveniences of day-to-day -day life and reporting them. And we've certainly seen this in other sectors. I mean, there's a recent book called something like The Campus Rape Frenzy. And I don't think either you or I would ever minimize actual sexual assault. But I mean, one point the book makes is that by some estimates, 17 or 18% of the claims of abuse on campus don't seem to have happened at all in any conventional sense. I believe that's the figure. More than half were unprosecutable. I mean, they involved things like two people mutually getting drunk. So if we expand the definition of sexual violence to include man and women, man and woman have a bottle of wine on date two, that would bring in most members of society, I think. And it's the same thing with some of this. Um, getting to the point, if, there, if a third of the hate crimes do take place on college campuses, again, you have to ask what a hate crime is. And this, this isn't <laughs> wild speculation. One of the first pieces I wrote about this was for Quillette, the online e-journal. And I had been asked by Andy No uh, as he was getting into journalism on this sector, you know, I think I'm a very good journalist, but you're an academic. Can you take a look at the figures for this one city, Seattle? Seattle's reported something insane, like 300 hate crimes last year. And when I looked at the situation, I think it was very similar to what you'd probably see on campus. Very few of the hate crimes, under 100, if I recall correctly, were prosecutable, able to go all the way through to the courts. Most of those didn't result in a conviction. And the reason for this was that the city had dramatically expanded the definition of a hate crime to include verbal as well as physical incidents, along with a couple of other things. The group of potential plaintiffs that could sue or that could bring these cases was much, much larger. So for example, homelessness was a potential victim category. If you attacked homeless people or said something like, get out of the way, you bum, that could at least theoretically be a hate crime. Homeless people were also very overrepresented among the perps in the other hate crime cases. I believe 22% of them were what the report called unhoused. So you had homeless people shouting something, you bitch, at someone who fell in another category. And then if that person responded, they were a potential perpetrator. I'm not sure how often that, that double offense occurred, but it certainly was possible and that that was what we were seeing. And I think that's what you'd be seeing in some of the real and what was reported in many of the fake cases coming from the campus. So the more you intensify the perception of victimization, I think the more pseudo victimization you'll get. So, so what you found is that around a third of the hoaxes were taking yes. place on campus. We don't know how many, you know, possibly as many as a third of the reported uh, hate crimes are also taking on uh, happening on campus. Whereas, as you mentioned, maybe just 1% of the US population is studying at a university. Um, when we were talking right before the interview, you had said that you thought that the, uh, that the book was, was kind of dry. I actually uh, have to, to disagree. And maybe it's because as, as mentioned, you really had a wonderful uh, narrator for hate crime hoax, but um, it, it can be a bit depressing, but I also found a, a, 
a bunch of a little bit of humor in the way that you describe some of the hoaxes and the predictable manner in which uh, they they play out. So that was uh, that was kind of fun. But the predictability also raises the question: given uh, it seems the likelihood that these hoaxes invariably um, do get found out, or oftentimes do get found out. Um, wouldn't that be discouraging perpetrators from attempting such schemes in the first place? Or is it perhaps the relatively minor coverage of the collapse uh, in relation to you know, the big fanfare when, uh, when so-called hoaxes are, are first uh, announced? Or is it perhaps just the simple fact that as you mentioned, so many of these are happening on college campus and the people who are trying to to perpetrate these hoaxes are, you know, immature and unsophisticated. Well, I mean, not to be cynical, but you're making one assumption there, which is that most of these hoaxes do get found out. I mean, so right now, I mean, I'm at maybe 10 to 15% of the most high profile cases, and that's 10% of the cases. So, I mean, I like to think that that's the rate of hate crime hoaxing. And I actually think it's probably pretty close. This would be concentrated among dramatic, notable incidents. But I mean, that we are, we are making an assumption there. I mean, it could easily be that many more of the other 90 plus percent of cases that don't result in a conviction did not occur. I mean, that the, the swastika written on the side of the black athletic dorm was just reported as a hate offense and budgets were increased. So, I mean, we'd really we'd really have to know kind of what the control is there. I'm, and I don't I don't necessarily think we do. Um, I also think that one of the reasons you see this so often on the campus or so often in a big city like Seattle, big left leaning city, is that there really isn't much chance of serious punishment. So, I mean, generally, when hate crime hoaxers are found out on campus, what you'll see is a misdemeanor charge for falsification of a report, if that. Um, one of the things I noticed during the writing of the book, and as a fairly ethical scholar, I didn't include these cases as hoaxes, I will note, but was that a lot of cases seemed to just disappear or end. I mean, so there'd be a report, I believe it was at Bowling Green, where a young, attractive Black woman said she was walking down the street when a group of white frat guys chased her screaming about Donald Trump and threw rocks at her, her phrase was like a dog and so on down the line. Um, and that, that never resulted in anything. It never resulted in a hoax claim and it never resulted in a conviction, a prosecution. My guess would be working at you know a top 300 college in a state youth system, there's no way they didn't have cameras on the buildings around you know the BGSU main campus that would have noticed whether or not there was a racial fight involving four or five people with a minority victim. Um, so in, in a case like that, nothing happens at all. It's just, it slides under the rug, it's gone permanently. There was another case, uh, San Diego State University, if I have this one correct, where a woman said that people probably racist stole her car. And there was there was a manhunt. I mean, people were going through the parking garages, student newspaper got involved, local newspaper got involved, which is how I heard about the case. And they found her car three spots away. She'd obviously just misparked it, went gone on with her life. And the, this whole conversation began about, did the racist bring it back? And that, again, was never a case that led to a conviction or anything on that order. So I, I wouldn't overestimate how many of these actually lead to some kind of brutal social sanction. I mean, it might be that, you know, 10% of the high profiles, 2% overall is not the full rate of hoaxing, first of all. 
And secondarily, even in some of the cases that were hoaxes and almost certainly were hoaxes, you, you don't exactly see six months inside like you normally do for an A or B misdemeanor. I mean, you see nothing. So the, the question would be, what's the disincentive? I mean, you're made very high profile in the local media for a while. Three months later, you're exposed in agate type at the bottom of the, bottom of the leisure and pet cat section. And then you go on with your life. You have a misdemeanor ticket. I, I don't really see that there's a disincentive structure there just coming from almost that Randian market perspective that would cause people to do anything. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it was maybe four, uh, four, maybe five years ago when I first came to the Atlas Society, um, there were some of the students that were involved with our programs. One was at St. Olaf's University. And uh, there was apparently some huge um, accusation that a student was having racist notes put on their car, put on their backpack and uh and it, it wasn't just this isolated incident the very next day there were massive uh protests i stalled here a little bit We seem to be having some technical difficulties. Uh, please yeah. stand by while we try to get back Jennifer. Sorry about all this, folks. So while we have Jennifer uh, trying to reconnect, so we don't have everyone just sort of sitting on the line, how about I uh, feel some questions for you to answer that way uh, we can see what's going on. Um, this is a comment from YouTube. Francis Ebeck uh, says, reporting a crime that did not happen, I think it's illegal in most states. Lying to the police is a crime by it in itself, but what does this do to those who are genuinely the victim of crimes? Well, yeah, I think I think that's a critical point. So I'm not one of the points that I always make when I discuss the book is that I'm not denying that racism exists or that crime occurs. I, I, I don't get very woke and guilty about this, but it's still something to remember. I mean, the majority of sexual assaults, for example, whatever that majority size might be, or the majority of hate crime claims are obviously based in reality. Uh, the sort of glib example I sometimes use during speeches is that if someone claims that they got beaten up uh, outside a tough country bar or an urban black club at closing time, that almost certainly occurred. I mean, the cops need to go take a look at that. 
So in that context, obviously, both people that are on, you know, the law and order kind of right-leaning side of this and people that do care about the actual victims of criminal offenses should have no patience whatsoever for these hoaxers who make it harder for other people to have their stories heard. I mean, when I mentioned eight or nine of those stories in a row, beginning with Jussie Smollett and going on down the list, um, there are many more. I mean, uh, Goucher College, University of Wisconsin Parkside with the nooses, uh, Kean College with the death threats, uh, Drake University instead of Duke University, so on. Uh, Oberlin, where one of the student leaders on campus spray painted things like tranny go home, targeting herself or himself, uh, I guess, over across the buildings, all of that makes it much harder for people that are in law enforcement to, when they hear a case like this, especially on a campus, take it especially seriously. And yeah, that, that's a real problem if someone is telling the truth. Um, my, one of my suggestions in the book is that people actually start enforcing the law, that if you file a false police report, you be charged with the highest count associated with that. I think after a couple hoaxers get a $60,000 fine or a year in jail. I mean, you'd see a drop off that would help almost everybody. Looks like Jennifer's back. Yes, Jennifer, can you hear us? Okay, there uh, still appears to be some technical issues on her end. So we'll just field another uh, uh, question. So this comes from Jeffrey Rembolt. Have you heard about the status of lawsuits about the kids from ten Kentucky and that big hoax? They had sued the media companies last I heard. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I'm actually really familiar with that case, which is known in Kentucky as the Covington Catholic case uh, or the Covington Catholic hoax. That was the situation where these kids from a private school in Kentucky, a bit preppy, but a group of nice guys, mostly athletes, had gone to Washington, D.C. to participate in the March for Life. And as they were leaving the event, the allegation was that they had surrounded this old Native American guy for no reason. They were chanting at him. They were smirking in his face, potentially spitting on him. They threatened to take his drum away. This is, you know, white privilege in action. And this became a firestorm in the media. I mean, the Washington Post wrote about it. I believe the New York Times did. CNN covered this. I mean, like the Covington kids are on TV, identified by name. These kids are on average 15. Um, and it turned out absolutely none of this had happened. I mean, the Covington Catholic kids were sitting around making dumb jokes and looking at the people in this, this public plaza in DC when someone had come up to them. He didn't like a comment they'd made or some such. He started pounding a drum in the face of one of the kids. And this, this altercated, this, this developed into an altercation among really three groups of people. There were also a group of black Hebrew Israelites in the plaza who started teasing both the Covington kids who eventually started responding and this native guy and some other people he had with them. So he had these three groups of males probably making jokes. The kids were getting the worst of it. And that was it. Then they all parted ways and the kids, I guess, went home. But the, the take on this was, you know, how dare they in the face of a person of color? And again, dozens of hours of national mass media, the Covington kids sued. I mean, they pointed out that they didn't initiate the fight or the argument, that it wasn't, you know, a big damn deal in the first place, uh, that they were minors who'd been exposed, who'd been publicized in this fashion. Well, last I heard, they won. I mean, they settled with the WAPO, I know. 
Uh, Nick Sandeman, I believe, is the kid jokingly said online or someone said for him that he was the highest paid employee at the Washington Post. Um, I don't know what happened to the other lawsuits. I'm honestly not up on that. But I, I encourage people to do this, actually. Um, when we and I, I almost feel bad. I'm talking to a libertarian audience as you know, a conservative writer and encouraging tort lawsuits. But I mean, at a certain point, like when you look at the these things like this woman, uh, Emma Sarley, that was fired from her job because she got into an altercation at a dog park where two people were yelling mildly rude things. And this guy, Fred Joseph, contacted her boss, who we knew casually and who was on Twitter and said that she was a racist and linked this cell phone tape and hundreds of thousands of people from both their pages are following and commenting. If it turns out, and it, it already has, if it turns out that any portion of that was fake or was exaggerated or was cut out of context, if I were Sarley, I would sue Joseph. I would sue my boss, my former boss. I would sue any media outlet that ran with this story because this, this kind of nonsense leading to what's called the cancel mob it happens all the time. It's pretty damaging. At least the Covington kids responded. Uh, last sentence on this, by the way, I thought the kids were pretty restrained. Like, I mean, I was an athlete in high school, and if some random guy came up to one of our varsity teams beating on a drum and chanting in a foreign language, we'd have beaten the crap out of him. I mean, it, race wouldn't have really mattered all that much. So it, I, I thought the kids were pretty restrained, and now it looks like they got some money for it. Good job. Uh, so, Wilford, can you hear me? Sure can. Okay, sorry about that. Little uh, technical difficulties. Um, I, we have another 10, uh, 15 minutes or so, Lawrence, I don't know if we'd already jumped into uh, some of the audience questions, but I want to make sure that we also get to your book, Taboo. Uh, and one of the, uh, the obvious facts that you cover in, in the book uh, was that white police officers are not going out of their way to murder black suspects. You included, as an aside, a data point uh, that was particularly surprising to me, which was that Black and Latino officers were in fact more likely to discharge their weapons um, at suspects of any race than white officers. Did I, did I get that right? And was the, the difference uh, statistically significant? Uh, I believe it was statistically significant. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an accurate data point. I mean, the gap definitely existed. Uh, probably standard 0.05 significance. I'd have to check Fryer in the papers on that. Um, but yeah, the the police abuse narrative just really wasn't very supported. I mean, there are two levels to that. So again, when we talk about this being sort of a liberty audience, I mean, should there be any laws regulating, frankly, sex and drugs and so forth? I mean, probably not in the majority of cases. So the police are not, there tends to be a sort of blind adherence on the right to the, the authority state, I think. The military, the police, they can do no wrong. I mean, and I, I don't share that attitude. I have a great deal of respect for the, you know, the fighting women and men in those organizations. But like we just drone struck one of our own aid workers because we got advice on targeting from the Taliban. So there, there's an element to which those organizations, like any other large governmental organizations need to be reined in. But with that said, if you're arguing that the people in these organizations are incompetent, racist drunks that are murdering black people or something along those lines, no evidence of that. And there, as I said, there are major books that argue basically that. Um, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. I mean, so in the Black Lives Matter chapter of Taboo, I try to break down all the core BLM claims. Like there's an epidemic of police murders. Uh, Chernobyl on primetime Fox News said roughly once a day, you know, an unarmed, defenseless black man is murdered in his language by the cops. 
And so that would break down to, let's say, 370 a year. That's fantasy. I mean, in every recent year on record, the number of unarmed black men shot by police officers fatally has been between 10 and 30. Uh, the number of unarmed people total, including all races and sexes, has been under 100, although sometimes close to that figure. There are less than 1,000 people shot by police in a typical year period out of 60 million interactions. Um, less than 250 of them usually are identified as Black. Given the Black crime rate, it's a bit higher than the white and Hispanic crime rate. That's actually quite proportional. And it just, just so on down the line, there was no evidence for any of BLM's major claims. And what you just said was one of the points I made, actually. When you get into the advanced research on this, and I, I didn't do the advanced research on this myself in terms of papers for this book. I did some good research, but I relied on other people as well. Um, Roland Fryer, for example, has run a real professional level set of regression models, as they're called on this, and found that when you adjust for equivalent characteristics, I mean, the precinct, which is probably a measure of social class, suspect armed, so on down the line, police are 27% more likely to shoot a white suspect than a black suspect. And that really, to some extent, is just common sense. I mean, I don't think that some tough cop really loves, quote unquote, rednecks or brothers all that much. It's not his job. But if you shoot a redneck, you're not going to get the same kind of hysterical mob scene in the streets that you will if you shoot a same income black guy. So it appears that's actually reflected in police decisions. Uh, similarly, black and Hispanic officers who have the same training and who are pretty good. I mean, there's so much pressure for police jobs that I don't, I don't know what sort of affirmative action effect we're seeing in a lot of big cities. Like there are a lot of people out lined up outside the precinct on hiring day. Um, they are not any less tough as cops, but they are also at some level probably aware that they might not be seeing the same penalties. They're more likely to discharge at, and by the way, looking at police prosecutions, so I'm not even sure that's true. These are perceptions created by the media of a problem that doesn't exist. But within the constraints of what most people believe, black cops, Hispanic cops are just as likely to shoot as white cops, if not more so. And in fact, the more so effect in one of the papers was significant. But the big one to me was the 27% more likely to shoot whites, which is one of those things that would absolutely be nationwide hysterically commented on reality if, if it cut in the other direction. We've actually seen people with that Friar paper try to claim that what he found was racism against black people. Because he asked about a couple of different variables and one of them was like, do the police murder you? But another one was, do you experience a slightly more profanity or shoving during an interaction, police interaction? And he found out that Black people I believe, were 16% more likely to face these very minor levels of violence. And so there are actually, you can find these New York Times headlines saying things like, criminologist finds that police stops harder on Black people. But any such finding ignores the fact that white guys were 30% more likely to get shot. So it's a complex picture at the very least, BLM pretty much unsupported. Interesting. So um, you've been teaching at, at colleges and currently at a historically black university for many, many years. And you contend that the primary thing holding uh, back many black students is not racism, but a heartfelt belief that um, the white world is, is a pervasively hostile place. You. You wrote, uh, America's opportunities are closed to them, not because of widespread racism, but because of their erroneous beliefs in widespread racism. 
Could you, what are some of the consequences of that? You said, for example, uh, less likely to go and pursue certain career um, paths or even certain majors. Well, I, I think that this, this combined, so a couple of things combined, like what, what you call oppositional culture in sociology, this isn't a radical idea or one that originates with me, um, combined with affirmative action effects, once you get into a college, it's at all good. I mean, that, that's a situation where AA effects obviously do apply when you look at demographics. A lot of things do work together to hold back black people. And I mean, you can, the different set of things work at least as intensely to hold back poor whites, by the way. But these are, these are very different in both cases from what you think of as systemic racism. Um, so I, I don't think it's much of a secret. I mean, I might be you know, educating quote unquote people outside the black community a little bit, but the idea that the, the mainstream USA is extraordinarily racist and hostile uh, is well supported by data. I mean, every time this question is asked in any coherent form, uh, about 50% of African-Americans, 26% to 52%, uh, believe that HIV was created in the lab by the feds to kill black people. So, I mean, that, that's the kind of baseline that you're talking about. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of gun-toting white libertarians believe this kind of stuff too. Saucers are following us around and so on. But in the black case, it's especially damaging because it's gone on for many years and it affects attitudes. Um, there was a recent poll of African-American adults where black people were asked if a black kid and a white kid with the same credentials apply to the same college, is the black kid more or less likely to get in? 5% of blacks said more, 65% said less. In reality, of course, the black guy would have about 150 point SAT advantage at a typical college. This, is, this isn't concealed and hasn't been since Baki. So these perceptions of constant racism, I've found to have a real effect. And there are other researchers that have as well. I mean, Eric Kaufman, the political scientist, recently did an experiment where he just read a passage, I think it was Ta-Nehisi Coates, one of, the, one of these woke writers, to black students and then asked them how much they thought they could succeed in life. And just reading that as opposed to a standard article about black successes in the wars against the whites back in the day, Shaka Zulu and so on, just reading that passage dropped their perceived level of success by something like 15%. So I wow. think that this, yeah, there, there's a real impact to this, to these courses constantly teaching people that, you know, their white friends and debating buddies and sleeping partners actually have this sort of hidden magical privilege and anything they take from your culture is completely invalid and stolen by them. Systemic racism is everywhere. What we actually find, kind of condensing this to a sentence or two, is that what systemic racism means in practice is that there are performance gaps between people. Um, Ibram Kendi and Robin DeAngelo and these sort of people have said this very openly, that if you're looking at something like SAT test scoring gaps, there are two options. Either one group is, their language is something like deeply inferior, they mean genetically inferior, or there's some kind of hidden bias somewhere in the test. The reality is that there's a third option. You know, did group B study less for the test? Uh, and I find that when you adjust for things like age, region, study time, the gaps that are attributed to racism almost totally close. So yes, in short, I think the idea that all of this is racism, which results in a lot of effort being directed into useless things, public protest against problems that don't happen and so on, um, as opposed to studying or working out in the gym for that matter. We've got a slight edge in athletics right now, but I think that is a bigger issue than actual hidden white people that hate black people. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there are many in that category. So you also cover immigration policy in, in Taboo and recently, We've seen uh, kind of an example of a fake hate crime with purported coverage of oh, yeah. immigration officers supposedly whipping 
uh, black Haitians, which certain media outlets claimed harkened back to the days of slavery. But leaving that aside, uh, there's a certain view among open border uh, contingent of libertarians, to say nothing of, uh, of the left, that maintains that immigrants are no more likely to take advantage of welfare programs than other citizens. What, uh, what did you find? What does the data show? Well, this all depends on who you're comparing and so on. But in general, no, I mean, that, that's flatly false. Um, let me see if I can pull this up, actually, without wasting a bunch of time. Yeah, if you just Google more than 50% of immigrants on welfare or 60% of immigrants on welfare, you'll find a perfectly neutral USA Today piece citing Center for Immigration Studies on one side, the best left groups on the other side, that just points out that 60% of immigrants are on welfare. There's no hostility toward immigrants contained in that statement. The USA is a massive welfare state and immigrants often don't speak English. So if you come to the USA from Haiti and you have to bone up on your English skills for four years, you're going to be receiving social benefits and you may be a hardworking top man. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it's silly to deny. I mean, that, that's my shortest answer so far. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's denied by anyone in political science. Um, perhaps not in political science, but certainly, you know, in the media, uh, there, there is a, uh, a piece of conventional wisdom that, um, that immigrants and illegal immigrants are no more likely to be on welfare or, or to be seeking welfare than, than native born Americans. And you'd taken a harder look at the data than I have. So. Yeah. I mean, that, that's not true. I mean, it, there are you can get virtually any result by massaging data. I mean, there's a study recently that found that illegal immigrants don't have a higher crime rate than equivalent Americans. But as I recall, the equivalent Americans they used were, I think it was deep Southern whites and inner city blacks. Someone might correct me on some specific detail of that, but they, they were comparing people in similar transitional regions of the country with similar income levels and so on. And it may be true that illegal immigrants have a lower crime rate than you see in Harlem or in Appalachian hollers, but that's not the crime rate for 90% of the country. So, I mean, even if you're arguing that illegal immigrants don't perform any worse than equally financially troubled Americans, the question would be, why would we bring in a very large group of financially troubled people who perform on par with our least successful citizens? So I have, and again, this is completely race neutral. I mean, we're talking about Afghani immigration right now. Something many people seem to forget, although Tucker Carlson's had fun pointing this out, but is that Afghanistan's entirely a West Asian, Caucasian country. I mean, Pashtun warriors often have green or blue eyes. So for me, as a black man, there's an element of absurdity to this in that people are advising me that it's my moral duty to take in people from Caucasian failed states like Afghanistan and Venezuela because they are people of color too or something like this and i don't think that outside of political wrangling there's any logical argument that you know criollo hispanics or path and fighters are you know fellow descendants of the motherland or something like that this is this is what i sometimes think of as takia which is a term used in arabic politics for intentional conscious lying where the liar knows they're lying but where the goal is considered important enough to justify lying. I want to popularize the word takia, but a claim that- one on me. Yeah, take, get it out there as much as possible. But a claim that illegal immigrants don't use welfare or commit crimes more than Americans is takia. There's no evidence of that that I've seen. 
If you want to play games with violence versus property crime and so on, it's worth noting that illegal immigration is itself a crime. So the crime rate for illegal immigrants, if we are going to take the law and order perspective for a second, would be 100 uh, percent. In general, I, I find that argument unconvincing. So, uh, Wilfred, I'd love to also just as we're wrapping up here, maybe um, take a step back and talk about you and your origin story and what got you interested in the subject matter, uh, your path to teaching, because I know you also have a background as an entrepreneur. So a little bit about what brought you to this to this state and also um, what is what's next for you in terms of your your writing and your research. Well, I mean, I've had a very interesting life. Actually, my mom was a Chicago Ward, which is a wealthy black family, but she herself uh, didn't interact much with the family, very active in the 1960s revolution and so on, and became an inner city school teacher. She taught in Chicago and in, on the east side of Aurora, which is Illinois' second largest city, east side. And um, that's the non-gang affiliated version of the neighborhood sign, I will note. But I mean, so I grew up in all the hood areas where she taught. And I mean, I was a competent athlete, a bit of a nerd, but a funny guy. And I, I like living there. I saw the house in the hood. So, I mean, I, I had that combination of upper and lower class perspectives, which helped me avoid maudlin bourgeois respectability. And so I did a range of interesting things really throughout life. I mean, I went to Latin America briefly with American Field Service after high school. Um, I went to a couple of different colleges, chasing things I was interested in. When I went for the PhD, I graduated from law school at around, I think I was 20. I was, I was a precocious lad. And it doesn't take much to get through the Chicago or East Aurora public school systems, to be honest. I mean, I could read and I, you know, was fast. So they yeah, kept moving me along. And at any rate, um, after law school, I decided to go for the PhD at Southern Illinois University, which is what eventually led me into teaching. But because of an illness in my family that brought me back to Chicago, I did a range of things before getting the final academic job, as you've mentioned. Um, at one point, I was a canvas manager for the human rights campaign. So the large gay and gender rights group would recruit these sort of aggressive young people to travel to mostly hostile areas. We were based on the south side of Chicago. We did these camping canvases all the time to round up support for gay marriage and things like this. So a lot of scuffling, a lot of quote unquote office relationships. I did this for a couple of years, a very fun job. And then I moved into almost the flip side of that, which is the sort of the semi-elite sales and trading floor sector. I worked in Marcus Evans International's American headquarters in the Tribune Tower in Chicago. And this again was sort of this very, very much Phoenix Media, all those companies, Goldman, I didn't work for them, I did apply. But I mean, it's very much a little bit of a boiler room element in the Chicago scene at this time. So I mean, I had like my desk and two phones to shout into and so on. Um, and when I got done with this, I'd made a reasonable amount of money and was finishing up my PhD. And I, I had thought about what I was gonna do. I'd done some inner city teaching myself. Um, I'd worked in the city colleges system. I'd advised friends in uh, public, you know, high problem schools. I didn't really want to do it. Uh, so I applied for standard academic jobs and took one, basically. I mean, a state university in Kentucky offered me a position. And it was an interesting one in that we're a couple of minutes, we're maybe an hour from actual Appalachia. We're historically black college. So for both those reasons, we had a good group of students that I thought I could actually give some help too. And I've been here ever since. Um, I think because it's a Black and Appalachian institution, there's not a lot of wokeness. I mean, most people are politically left, I'm sure. But I, there hasn't been a massive amount of problems with my books. It's more the question is, will he be in class on time? You know, we got to get these kids, you know, into a better life. Um, <laughs> so 
So what am I going to do going forward? I, I have a couple new book deals, actually. Uh, the question is, because I've, I've frankly been late on a lot of things recently, a lot of work coming in at once. So I'm, I'm trying to get projects out there. But I mean, I'm working on a book about education. I'm working on a book about policing. And I was recently asked if I'd be interested in writing a version of sort of the old 12 lies my teacher told me, but from kind of the political center right this time. So looking at some of the nonsense we now see in schools, you know, CRT just means this, or the Indians were peaceful, or Joe McCarthy didn't find any communists, just the new generation of lies, mostly from the other side. And I think that one would probably be a bestseller. So I mean, th those are potentially coming down the pipe now. So Great. Yeah, I'm not done writing. How can, what's the best way for us to follow your work? Well, I'm extremely accessible. If you Google my name or preferably Bing or Yandex or whatnot, it, I mean, Google is a terrible company, but um, my, I'm Will Fred Riley. You see that at the top of the screen. I'm extremely accessible. Like I'm on Twitter. I have more than 45,000 followers. I'm on Facebook. You can add my personal page. It's Will rather than Will Fred Riley, uh, if I recall correctly. You know, my website is part of the college website. So, I mean, I, I, like most young, most relatively young wired in people, all you have to do to find me and argue with me is search my site or my my social and i look forward to people doing that great um well perhaps are you on clubhouse no i actually i feel like i'm wired in enough kind of like <laughs> if you were on clubhouse and you wanted me to have a conversation I, I would probably link in i've done that with locals but i mean the, these sites keep proliferating i don't feel like i'm saying anything edgy enough on mainstream social media to really get kicked off yet so no, I'm, I'm not on Clubhouse. I may set up a locals. Um, I was actually asked recently if I'd be willing to set up an OnlyFans. I, I mean, I thought that was kind of a joke. I don't know what I do, like read off stats, you know, topless. But I mean, there's a lot of it out there. I'm pretty cool with the basic Twitter, Facebook, Insta, so on. I'm, I'm on YouTube. I just have a couple of videos uploaded. But again, pretty easy to find. And I'm looking forward to talking to a lot of you guys. Excellent. Well, um, thank you for making time out of your, your busy teaching and uh, writing schedule to talk to us today. Again, the books are Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, but you can talk about Dr. Riley, as well as Hate Crime Hoax. And again, I highly recommend the, the Audible version. Somehow he he uh, lucked out with a very famous narrator, so they're they're uh, not at all dry. They're actually a joy and um, even a tad humorous to read. So, uh, Dr. Riley, thank you. I appreciate your joining us. All right, sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, and uh, I want to thank all of you who joined us, who stuck with us through our technical difficulties. I want to encourage you to uh, come back and join us next week. Uh, our senior scholar, Professor uh, Richard Salzman, is going to be talking to Carrie Ann Biondi. And then uh, the week after that, I'm going to be talking to Blake Harris about uh, his book on Palmer Lucky and Oculus VR, The History of the Future. And don't forget, the gala is coming up November 4th. It's really just a few weeks away now. So uh, make sure to check that out at theatlassociety.com and hope to see you there and next week.